So we come to the end of our series. By this we know this is the end, but make no mistake about it. The word of God goes forth and it clings to the heart of God's people. The epistle is still there. You can always go back to it, read it, be encouraged by it. But this will be our concluding sermon. By this we know the world. Next week, we're going to have Pastor John uh, coming back with a bang, um, leading a dedication Sunday for all the children that were born in the past two years at LCF. So we look forward to Pastor John's return next Sunday. Till then, we're still here. By this, we know the world. So open up your Bibles to 1 John. Hopefully, this is not the last time because you still have your Bible, right? You still can read. So 1 John chapter 2, we're going to pick up where Mike left off last week. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would be with me as I bring forth this word. And I pray, Lord, you would be also with my hearers to hear and be edified and be built up in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for those who stood. Please have a seat. Here's a controversial thing on a screen. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe not. Maybe this is the first time you're going to hear this. You are a science denier. This is a charge of blasphemy in our modern world. You see, denying scientific propositions in our postmodern world is the heresy of all heresies. And this is a charge of blasphemy. Those who are denying the science could may well lose their jobs. You may ask why. Because denying science in our society, it means that you are narrow-minded, that you are a bigot, that you lack rationality. It also denotes inferior morality. That is denying science in our world, according to modern-day luminaries. Please do not misunderstand me. Science is a gift from God, have been given to humanity in order for us to learn more about the world in which we live. You see, human beings are made in the image of God, endowed from their creator with superior rationality, a sense of morality, and a yearning for spirituality. And all of these markers distinguish us from all the created order, all the material world. But instead, modern man have morphed science from being a tool to gain knowledge to being the fountain and the source of all knowledge, all truth, all faith, and all obedience. In our modern society, this society have elevated scientists to the position of high priests. And their peer-reviewed journals or writings are infallible, 
inerrant, canonical writings. It is the scripture of our society. And you're speaking against any of these canonical writings, you are a science denier. You are a blasphemer, you see. And here you have the birth of a worldview called scientism. John Frame, a Reformed theologian, the late John Frame, I should say, he recently passed, he wrote a book called A History of Western Philosophy and Theology. And in it, he defines scientism, and I quote, as the view that the best or only way of determining truth is through the methods of natural science, end quote. This view of the world reduces everything to the material, observable reality. And nothing else exists. So the supernatural reality doesn't exist, such as God's existence, God's intervention in human affairs, and the most preposterous notion would be for someone to say that the Bible is the Word of God. You see, because nothing exists outside the material realm. Then you would say, what about morality? Well, they would argue that these philosophical constructs could be deduced by human rationality alone. You see, scientism is a worldview fully equipped. It is a religion of our times. Make no mistake about it. Scientism cares not for God's commandments and cares not for God's judgment. There is no fear of God because God doesn't exist. This set of beliefs, humanistic beliefs, are there for you to just believe. And they are diametrically opposite to God's standard, that is the Word of God. Unfortunately, many Christians today look to science to get guidance on their lives, how they ought to live, how they ought to vote, how who they should marry, how they should raise their children. All guidance, you see, they look to science and scientists to give them guidance. Unfortunately, this is the prevalent worldview of our time. And many so-called Christians have reduced Christianity, truncating the gospel, putting Christianity in a tiny corner of their lives in the recesses of their mind. Christianity only comes to the surface when they come back home at the end of a long working day to find there's no electricity. Oops, there's no internet at home. They scroll through their pictures and they come across a deceased friend. And then they remember, oh, there's God. And they are comforted. And that is Christianity for many people. That is the extent of the Christian worldview for them. So, keeping all of this in mind, I have a couple of questions to challenge you with and to wrestle with as we go through this text today. You will have the questions on the screen. Have you been tempted to adopt scientism or any aspect of this worldview as part of your own? If your answer is yes, you have been tempted to adopt some of these aspects that we just spoke about, then you are in good company. You see, the churches, the believers that were addressed in 1 John were people also tempted to syncretize the prevalent worldview of the culture with Christianity. Greek philosophy, where they start to look, have a, a, an inferior view of the flesh, looking at Christ as me, merely a man, or 
He is God who appeared to be a man. You see, the Gnostics at that time seemed very reasonable. It was the worldview of their time. So they were clearly tempted to adopt the most intelligent, smartest way to view the world. And that is why we are tempted as well. Second question, have you ever contemplated which side are you on, God's or the world's? Look, you might think this is a bit extreme. This is just a preacher trying to use some rhetoric to gain your attention. Well, no, actually. Are you on God's side or the world's side? Which worldview are you adopting? And the reason why I have to ask this question, you need to feel the tension of the text. You need to understand exegetically, First John, John himself pits two things against one another. He pits the world against God. Children of the devil and children of God. Darkness and light. Truth, antithesis. Love, hate. This is the tension we see throughout the epistle of 1 John. In order for us to appreciate the context that we just discussed, you also need to appreciate that at the time of in Asia Minor in the first century, Greek philosophy was not only prevalent, but also adopted by Christians in the context of the local church. And all the apostles, all the prominent apostles have addressed this issue one way or the other. We have three apostles who wrote three distinct epistles to the churches in Asia Minor. You have the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle John. The closest to what we are discussing here, Gnosticism and the Greek philosophy, syncretistic ideas, which means marrying some worldview, that is the worldview of the world at that time, the Greek philosophy, with some Judaizing tendencies, to mix it up with Christianity was the case of the church in Colossae, which also in Asia Minor. The same Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, the same people that John is addressing here. Now, there are some differences between the church in Colossae and the churches in Asia Minor, the rest of the churches, and the difference is not subtle, but it's the same thing, but it's a flip side of the same coin. Let me put it this way. They had an either exalted view of the flesh that they thought through what we call asceticism, through the severity of the body, they're able to somehow gain some sort of higher knowledge to reach salvation. The flip side of the coin in Asia Minor, which what John is writing to, is the inferior view of the flesh. They both have a misunderstanding, both extremes, on how they view the flesh. And so, in 1 John, they view the flesh as it's nothing. And so you have licentiousness. You can live in whichever way you want to live. You are saved. You see, you already have the knowledge of salvation. That's all what matters. Both views of the flesh are imbalanced views of the material universe in which God created us in and a part of and a truncated view of the incarnation of Christ, a false view. Let me show you from Colossians. Go to Colossians chapter uh, 2, verse 20 to 23. Colossians chapter 2, 20 to 23. Paul writes this, If with Christ... You died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? 
as if you were still alive in the world? Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish. The world is perishing as they are used according to, catch this now, human precepts and teachings. Now focus on this verse. Verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The flip side, in 1 John, they say, well, hey, we don't need the indulgence of the flesh. That means God doesn't care about the flesh, so I can live in whichever way I want to live, you see? Notice that Colossians was written some 30 years before 1 John. So maybe they have taken this and I misunderstand it to say, okay, that means the flesh doesn't really matter, so we can live in whichever way you want to live, but I'm uh, speculating here. Now, what do I want you to understand in this sermon is this. Here's the thesis of the sermon. Here's the crux, if you will, of the sermon. I want to help you understand that faith in Christ requires absolute loyalty and obedience to Him over everything and anyone in your world. Christian, your life is not your own, but Christ is Lord over your life. And His Word is the ultimate authority for your worship and for your morality. Hence, Christ must be the center of all of your affections, the attraction of all of your desires, and His glory, the aim to which your life aspires. This is the heart of 1 John. So let's go back to our passage, shall we? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. So let's read it again, lest you forget where we are going with this. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, if we want to break down this text, here you have something on your screen. It is uh, from Daniel Aiken, who cites Smalley. There are two theologians, and they uh, break down the text in a very helpful way. In verse 15, it says, love of the world. And see, the diametrically opposite of that is the love of God. And then there are desires that come from both of these things, from the love of the world and love of the Father. And that's in verse 16, we're going to deal with that. And in verse 17, he says, well, the world is passing away, and what is left? God and those who do His will. So if you do the desires of the world, then you will perish with the world. If you do the desires of God, you will have everlasting life with God. That's a summary of the exposition. So let's dive in to the beginning. Now, you see in verse 15, two important words here. Go back. Is love and the world. Go back to that slide. Love and the world. So what is love? This is a famous word. Some of you may know this word. In the Greek, it's called agape. It's, it's a verb. But in this context... The word agape is used to denote something not necessarily love per se, but some things that denote love. Esteeming something very highly, prioritizing it, gaining satisfaction or taking pleasure in that thing, and that what denotes love. Do you take satisfaction in the world and its desires or do you take satisfaction in God and His Word? 
Do you prioritize the world and its things and things that comes with the world? Or do you prioritize the Father and His Word? The second important Greek word here that we have dealt with a few sermons ago is the word world, which is in the Greek cosmos. And we said when we were dealing with 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that Jesus died not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, the whole cosmos. We said it is clearly does not denote every single human being. And one of the examples I gave that to refute the idea that the word world means every single human being is I referred to this specific verse. I said, the apostle says, do not love the world. So it cannot mean every single person because that means he's saying, do not love every single human being. You see the problem? So what does the world mean then? Well, Brian J. Dodd said that the word world here denote three specific things based on the theological context in the New Testament, but also specifically in Joannine literature. That means all the writings that have been written by the Apostle John. And so they denote three specific things. The first thing, when it uses the world, it could denote spatial element. Spatial element, which means what? The created order, the creation all together. He was there, he, the word became flesh, and he created what? The world. He created the created order, the spatial aspect of the world. The second thing is a temporal aspect of the world. That is, in this world, in contrast with the world to come. In this life, the age of creation before we die and resurrection to the next life, the afterlife. Does that make sense? So the first one is spatial, is the, the whole created order. The second one is temporal. That means it is this, the creation, this age, not the age to come. And the third meaning of the word world is the anthropological meaning. Anthropological meaning. Anthropological comes from anthropos, which is, means human, and anthropological has to do with, in what Dodd means here, is that people are at enmity with God. Is the fallen world with all of its systems. It is exactly what he's saying. Do not love the world, the fallen world, the sinful world, the people who are fallen, who are at enmity with God. To drive this point home, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesus, by the way, is another church, another city in Asia Minor. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now catch this. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so the world then, following the course of this world then, is following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil. Following everybody else and the philosophies of the world. And thirdly, following the passions of your own flesh that are contrary by nature to the revealed will of God according to the Holy Scriptures. So let's see how John uh, talks about this exact same dichotomy between the world and God. And, and he really specifically addresses the world here. Look in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, let's go back there. We're going to pick up from verse 7 to verse 10. 
He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That is, he has been participating in the fall of man, the state in this, that the world is in. And look at the following phrase. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Which is interesting, by the way. In John chapter 12, don't turn there. John chapter 12, verse 31, he says, Jesus came to judge the world. You will say, well, wait a second. Didn't John also say in John 3.16, God so loved the world? What in the world is going on? Well, it means different things. The word world here means different things. You have to follow the context. Let's continue. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now catch this, very important. By this it is evident who are the children of God on the one hand and who are the children of the devil on the other hand. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Look right at me. So now you have the dichotomy set. The devil, God. Children of the devil, children of God. Children of the devil keep on sinning. The children of God do what God requires. They do righteous acts. They do acts of righteousness. What did God do? God came to destroy the works of the devil. And so he triumphed over the devil. And from those children who are by nature children of wrath, he transforms. He takes them from under the power of the world into the power of his name. You see? They become the children of God. They are born from above, and they want now to desire to do righteous acts. They don't desire to do the things of the world following the prince of the power of the air, there's the devil, and all the craftiness and the cunning of all the prevalent worldviews out there. They want to do what God requires. Two different things. Now, catch this, like I just showed you. The people who are children of God are part of the world, spatially, because they're part of the created order, temporally, because they are living in this age, right? They didn't die yet, but not anthropologically. You see? They are not at enmity with God any longer. So they are in the world, but they are not of the world. Catch it now? So now let's see how Paul uh, explains this and how he really gives us even not only the orthodoxy of this, how we should understand proper understanding of who Christ is, and as a result of that, as those who are born again, how they ought to behave. That is orthopraxy. Let's go back to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to pick up from verse 6 to 15. We're going to take it in, because it's a long and lengthy passage, we're going to split it in half. The first part is 6 to 9, and then we're going to see the remainder. Therefore, Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. The Apostle John would say, just as you were taught, from the beginning, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, very important. Look at verse 9 here. The fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
is connected to you recognizing that Jesus Christ is the Lord in verse 6. And as a result of that, John Calvin denotes three things, actually. He says, you walk in pure doctrine. That's what it means. You are walking in pure doctrine. As you are born again, therefore you are walking in step with the pure doctrine that you were taught from the beginning. And he says, he takes a a second metaphor saying you are rooted like a tree, rooted and planted in the earth. You are supported by the roots. That is what? The apostolic teaching, the apostolic authority of the word of God. You are rooted and you are nourished from the pure doctrine. And you are supported as a tree. And the third metaphor, he says, you are built up. Built up like a spiritual house. And what is the foundation of that house? Well, you know. Jesus Christ is Lord. On this rock, I will build my church, Jesus said to Peter, right? And so the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is the foundation that he is God fully in the flesh. He is the foundation of all of our beliefs. And that is diametrically opposite to what? To verse 8. Philosophy. Empty deceit, teachings according to human tradition, things that are according to the elemental spirits of this world. So he says, well, look at the things above. And then you have the world on one hand, you have God on the other hand. Who is your source of authority? Well, it ought to be Christ. If you profess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is the source of all rule and all authority. Look at the following verse. Verse 10 says exactly that. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So you are born again, not of things in this world, but of the things above. You are born again from above. Not by your own doing, but by the work of God. He continues. So as a result of that, there is obedience that follows. Having been buried with him in baptism, that's a symbol of you dying to yourself, denying yourself, and you are living for God now. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, which means what? You are by nature worldly, doing the things of the world. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By God's grace, we belong to God. How? What are the means by which God accomplishes this? In verse 14, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Everything worldly, everything you used to believe, everything you used to be, your identity is crucified. You deny yourself. You die for everything you thought is right, you believed is of value, you esteemed, you prioritize. It's dead. Instead, you are alive to God and God alone. Alone. Otherwise, it is idolatry. So what is the result of what Christ had done? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Who are the rulers and authorities? Well, the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the one who concocts all types of false ideology being thrown at us and we in our own enmity with God agreeing and coming along with it all of these things, like what 
Apostle John would call it the Antichrist spirit that is in the world. So, how we ought to live as a result of that? Well, Paul tells us now practically. So this is orthodoxy. You have to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has all authority and all rule over your life. Okay, so now, what do I do as a result of this? Well, he tells us in chapter 3. So just turn there to chapter 3 in Colossians. And by the way, before we go there, I want you to really, really hear me when I say this. You cannot do any of any of the things that we're about to talk about on your own strength. Only those who are born again can do these things. Those who have turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus, knowing that they deserve the punishment, not Christ. And so your sins have been imputed on Christ and His righteousness has been imputed on you through faith alone. In Christ alone, by the authority of the Word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. If you believe this, then you can do what Paul is about to say now in chapter 3. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, now you're talking to your believers, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God as a mediator. Set your mind, verse 2, on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. What does that mean? Well, He's John talks about it. He, he, they say the exact same things. When Christ appears, what is left? By the way, John says the same thing. Second Peter, Peter says the same thing. The world is going to be going where? Passing away. Everything in the world is gone. Why, and what happens to you? Well, your life is hidden with Christ in God, and God is infinite. That's the only thing that will last. So he says, as a result of this, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, what is worldly in you. You see, there are some vestiges of the world in us. That's why worldly ideologies tempt us. That's why human wisdom appears to be very wise, very persuasive. And anyone with the acronym PHD sounds like, oh my goodness, he's like a prophet of the Lord. We struggle because we have been fed this lie to believe the experts on how you ought to live your life. He says what? So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, what is worldly in you. So what are the earthly things? What are the desires of the world? Well, he says sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why does he say that? Why is it idolatry? Because you are loving the world. Because you are esteeming the world. You are prioritizing the world and the things of the world and men instead of the creator. In verse 6, and that's what we were talking about, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming to punish the world. Verse 7, in these you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. He continues a list now. He says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. He's talking in the context of the local church now. Remember, every one another is always in the context of the local church. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have, by the way, and with ex, by extension, all Christians, all believers in Christ, so not just uh, the people you know at LCF. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, the, yourself that was part of the world with its practices, and have, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, 
What knowledge do we seek? Knowledge of God. That's the beginning of wisdom. Not anything else. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, what? He's the fruit of the Spirit. He's those who love God. Do what? Compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See, the Christian life is connected to the church life, if you haven't noticed. Just want to point that out. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom. The wisdom of the world? No, the wisdom of God. Let the word of Christ, he says, singing psalms and, and, and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, how do we put to death our worldliness, our worldly ideas? Well, he tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Through by the word, we're able to put to death everything that is worldly in us. So now, let's turn back to our main passage. By the way, if you haven't noticed, we pretty much really dealt with most of the passage, but just because since this is expository preaching, we have to go through the rest of these uh, verses and show you the nuances in these verses. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so we go back to that the, uh, the, the breakdown that I made, that I cited, I'd rather say. Verse 16, it comes from the world. What comes from the world? Well, what he just told us, the desires of the world, the desires of the flesh. And in the Greek, by the way, that word desire actually de de denotes lust, the lust of the flesh. And you could break, break that lust of the flesh into two. The lust of the eyes and the, and the pride of life. I was thinking about this, and, and I just jotted down some, uh, some phrases that denote two of these things. So, pride of life. There's no judgment for me. I'm a good person. God is bigger than my sin. I'm a Christian. So, I'm safe. I'm not going to die tomorrow. All of these things are rooted in what? Life. The pride of life. You think you can live forever, but you won't, John says. This is pride of life. You think that you are owed tomorrow. You're not owed tomorrow. See, those who think they're owed tomorrow are those who do not have God or the Bible in their worldview. And so, if their life is only the material world and everything that is in this world, then they are governed by their senses, by their sensuality. Whatever they see is real. What they don't see is not real. So what do they see? Their spouses, their careers, money, their children, their investments, these things are tangible. 
and they prioritize those because that's all there is. Let me show you how the Apostle John, in chapter 3, verse 17, really captures this. And he says this. It's a very simple verse. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, I want you to zoom into that word, sees, looks. He has the goods of the world, so he sees the goods of the world. Of course, what you see is what motivates you. If all you see in the world is the goods of the world, that what spurs you to action, then that what exposes your heart. That's your treasure, is what you run after, is what you elevate, is what you esteem and prioritize. So, when he says he has the world's goods, but he sees his brother, he closes his heart because what he desires is not to help his brother. What he desires is himself. He desires the world. This is my work, the work of my hand. It is for me. It is for my family. It's for those I care about. It is not, it's not a gift of God. It's not the means to an end. It is the end in itself. And that's the problem with scientism. See, science became an end. It became the source, not the means by which we gain knowledge. It is the source of knowledge. It becomes the goal. It becomes the truth instead of what leads us to some sort of understanding that God is there. And so he has the goods of the world, so clearly he ran after them, and he sees his brother, whom Christ died for, and he closes his heart. But if he would see someone that he can benefit from, his own siblings maybe, some of his family members? Here's my question. Who rules your life? Is it Christ? Was it mammon? Money? Is it the world? Do your priorities match up almost identical to your pagan neighbor, to your Muslim neighbor, to the neighbor who doesn't know Christ? If you would write down your priorities in life, are they identical? Because if they are, you do not know God, friend. You need to repent and trust in Christ. Your priorities should look to someone from the world as if it's upside down. It should look weird. So your generosity to someone you barely know from the world's perspective, but that is your brother in Christ, would seem ridiculous. You want to die for your brother in Christ? You want to lay down your life for your friends in the church, as Jesus says? Well, you open up your heart to them. You become generous to them, not greedy. And these are the differences. Where's your identity rooted? Is it rooted in the things of the world, what you see, or in the things that are unseen? Do you set your mind on heavenly things or on earthly things? All of these questions you have to examine. Brother and sister, you need to examine your heart. You need to ask yourself these questions. Okay, let's go now to the final verse. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, we already understand this. What is the world? Everything that is not in Christ is the world. The prince of the power of the air, the devil and his demons, people who are at enmity with Christ, 
and everything else is passing away. And that's why he says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, I know you understand this, but in closing, I want us to talk about a story from the Bible. Turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 39. This is in a way of illustration, and hopefully it sticks with you. <clears throat> so Isaiah chapter 39, we read of the story of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a king in the southern kingdom of Judah in the 8th century B.C., and King Hezekiah, in the previous chapters, from chapter 37 to 38, God delivered him miraculously, miraculously, from the most powerful king of the time, King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And there was another miracle happened to King Hezekiah. That was, he was on his deathbed. He was sick, about to die. And the Lord delivered him miraculously. Now, two big miracles in King Hezekiah's life. And now we we'll pick up in chapter 39. I'm going to begin with from verse 1, but on the screen it's only verse 3. So bring your Bible next time if you don't have it. At that time, Merodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Oh my goodness, Hezekiah said. No, that's not what he said. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Well, that's right. For he thought, and here's the kicker, in Second Chronicles, the prophet says it exposed his heart. And here's what he thought. There will be peace and security in my days. Now, go back to verse 2. What do you read in verse 2? Well, let me tell you. The lusts of the world. The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is what you read in verse 2. Silver, the gold, the spices, precious oil, his whole armory and storehouses. Are these things good things? Of course. Who gave him all these things? Yahweh did. The triune God of the Bible. These things are good things. But they should lead to what? to praising God. Your boast ought not to be Hezekiah in the things of this world, but your boast is what? That you know the Lord of hosts. That's your boast, Hezekiah. 
But he didn't use this as a bridge to bring the gospel. What he did is what? Oh, look. I'm a pretty good uh, ally you might have, you know? Don't forget, Babylon, he was strategic. He was pragmatic. He was a statesman. He understood that Babylon is an up-and-coming kingdom. And the kingdom of Assyria is having trouble. They just lost to Judah by the deliverance of God. But he doesn't worry about that. What he wants to secure is his future. He wants to secure more treasures, more riches, and more security by having an alliance with an up-and-coming world power called Babylon. And so he shakes hands. He strikes hands, like the Bible would say, with foreigners, with those who don't know the Lord. And so instead of saying, entrusting God, that he will provide the riches, as you clearly saw that the Lord provided uh, for the otherwise faithful king Hezekiah, and instead of trusting God for protection and deliverance, he trusted what? The world and the things of this world. He trusted what his eyes can see and the pride of life. So like the Babylonian envoy, we have another envoy in our world. The envoy of scientism. Those who are coming from this worldview telling us to make an alliance with the world. And, we, and they're guaranteeing us the goods of the world. You're going to keep your job. You will be seen as someone who is not a science denier. You don't have to worry about God. You don't have to worry about your eternal state. That's not a big deal. Here's what a big deal what I can do to you, that's a big deal. That's going to hurt. But what did Jesus say? Do not be afraid of those who can hurt your body, but be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So when you set your mind on the things of God, you do not worry about the things of the world. You do not fear the world. You do not fear the king of Assyria, no matter how powerful his army is, or how you will look. What's the state of your heart this afternoon? Well, I want to close with one passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. You remember that? Exiles in Digital Babylon. That's always the title of the series that we have spent in First Peter for two years going through First Peter verse by verse with Pastor John. So this should be very familiar to you. First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to close with this. Everything comes together here. First Peter chapter 1 verse 13. Therefore, preparing your mind for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is your time in the temporal world, in this life, in this world, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, the things of this world, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What does this mean? Spatial. Before the foundation, before the created, the created order of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, not in the perishable things of the world. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, your desires now is to obey the eternal word of God. So by your obedience to the truth, for a sincerely brotherly love. See, everything in the Christian life always revolves around the local church. Please do not miss this. Sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. The perishable seed meaning it will perish, it will be destroyed, it will pass away, but of imperishable that is eternal through the living and abiding word of God. And catch this, this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, by the way. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, and by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And here's my question to you on the screen. So, have you savored the goodness of Christ and the truthfulness of his divine word? What satisfies you? The world and its desires? And which do you prioritize? The world or Christ? Who do you seek for wisdom in your life, your worship, your morality, scientific experts, or the Word of God? So we understand that as Christians, we trust in Christ alone for everything, and our constitution is the Word of God. It is sufficient for everything you have to do in your life. How you, you want to know how to raise your children? You don't know? Here. You don't know how to live a godly way that pleases and glorifies God? Right here. Because nothing else matters. Nothing. That's why you're here. So, I'm done. But in way of summary, I have four main points that you need to understand this. If you take anything out of what we just said, you take these four points. First, Reign of Christ, I'm going to say them quickly so you can keep this slide. Reign of Christ, second, allegiance to Christ, third, reliance on Christ, fourth, return of Christ. First, reign of Christ. You must believe, Christian, that nothing is worthy of your reverence, your adoration, and devotion but the triune God of Scripture. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the only sovereign over your life, your will, and your morality. Number two, allegiance to Christ. Christian, you must love and trust in God supremely by submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ with absolute and unwavering obedience conforming your desires, goals, and actions to his word and to the glory of his name. Thus, your personal identity as a Christian must supersede any other national, social, economic, cultural, or familiar identity. Number three, reliance on Christ. None of the above is possible on your own strength but by the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work in all those who believe to willfully and, mark this word, joyfully desire and act according to the word of God. So abandon any deluded trust in your personal ability or that of any other human being to accomplish anything that is truly good and pleases God. 
Number four, the return of Christ. You must believe, Christian, that the triune God of Scripture will return to judge the world to eternal damnation. And there is no hope for salvation apart from faith in Christ alone. What are points of application in this? I hope these words really resonate with you deep in your heart because these things are truths. Amen, somebody? Okay. Application, number one, learn. So learn to discern the difference between worldly doctrines taught by the Antichrist spirit and biblical doctrine. Read your Bible. These are simple things. Sunday school teaches you this. Read your Bible daily and do not rely on your own understanding, but test everything with the Word of God. Next, reflect, because everyone is looking. This is true, including me, by the way. This is true. Everyone is looking to solicit your trust, allegiance, and obedience to something or someone. Who do you think I'm trying to solicit your obedience to? The Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody is trying to solicit your obedience and your trust in something or someone. Let's not kid ourselves here. You must question every person. See, I'm not telling you, say, look at me. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm giving you a framework how you ought to live your life as a Christian. I'm not catching the fish for you. I'm teaching you how to fish to become fishers of men. So question. Every time anyone in a podcast, on a radio, or news agency tells you, you ought to do something, you should do something, or you must do something, immediately you bring in your goggles, the Word of God. Finally, apply. Ask if you should obey any demand, conform to any ideal or abandon any belief, testing it against what the Lord taught you through His pure and perfect Word. That's all. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word, for it is indeed perfect, it is sufficient, and I pray, God, that You minister to Your people, that You remind us of these truths, that You teach us to grow more and more into Your salvation. Help us, God, to discern the difference between truth and error. And only trust in you, obeying your commands, and do everything to the glory of your name. I pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen.